Hola, hola, hola. Welcome back to Unruly. This is part two of Roe v. Wade está en peligro. As I was editing, I noticed some weird sound distortions that I haven't been able to get rid of, though I spent hours trying. I am not a sound engineer. Also, I hope it goes without saying, but I'm still going to say it anyway. Mariah and I both use humor to cope with some of the terrible realities of life. When you hear us laugh in this episode, or really in any episode, we aren't making light of a serious issue. We're really just trying to keep from crying. The last episode left off with Mariah discussing the recent anti-abortion law in Texas. I will see your Texas within Oklahoma on May 3rd. <laughs> the governor. Signed. What a sick little game. <laughs> All the states are one-upping each other. They're like, oh, bet. <laughs> Look what we got. I know. This is how much we hate women. Oh my god. <laughs> it's it's like watching tennis, watching all of these states do this. <laughs> 15 weeks? Well, we're going to do 12 weeks. And honestly, that was the other thing I was going to say too. I didn't know. Let's see, when did I take a pregnancy test? Yeah, it must have been around 12 weeks maybe. And I remember someone when I brought this up, someone saying, "But women have periods, they would know." And I'm like, do you know how many women have irregular periods? You can't use that as a determinant. No way. And yeah. with some forms of contraception, I, yeah, I think consensus is a six-week ban is almost a total ban. Right. right. And, you know, the other thing too is I was reading somewhere that the six-week ban has almost had the opposite effect because women who find out early enough do not have time to think or prepare and they are forced into a decision because they are on a timeline. And so instead of potentially getting their ducks in a row, sorting it out and making a decision to keep it, they're forced to play it safe because they can't do otherwise in Texas. So they just go ahead and have the abortions because yeah, they have to play it safe. Yeah. Again, the lack of logic. You know what two words I've never heard in a sentence together until now? Patriarchy and logical. You know, I just don't know if I've ever or even like considered those two terms related. <laughs> you know, I have never, when I've edited before, had laughing. Monty jumping in here with an edit. Mariah and I got so sidetracked that I actually forgot to bring up the rest of what I was going to say about Oklahoma, which is fine because between recording and editing, Oklahoma not only outdid Texas, it actually outdid itself. It went from a six-week abortion ban, allowing for those who aid and abet in abortion to be fined $10,000, which the governor signed on May 3rd, to a ban passed by the legislature on May 20th that bans abortion at fertilization. The law earlier this month allowed for no exceptions for rape or incest, but this current one does if those crimes, if 
those crimes were reported to the police. Interestingly, this latest law does not prohibit any kind of contraception, including Plan B. This is kind of surprising, to be honest. This bill is also very specific in how it defines abortion so that it would not prohibit them in the case of miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies. The governor is expected to sign the bill into law at any moment, probably by the time you hear this. He's also warned Native American reservations that they best not become abortion havens. As expected, a lawsuit to block this is in the works and will probably be filed the second the governor signs it into law. Now back to the rest of the states. Well, there are 23 more states and actually maybe a couple more. 23 more states that have laws that could be used to restrict the legal status of abortion. 13 of these have the trigger bans that you were talking about in Texas. So these are laws that will immediately ban all or virtually all abortions once SCOTUS overturns Roe. So immediately, these are Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, of course, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, of course, Utah, and Wyoming. In addition to some of the states I've already named, Others have unconstitutional bans that have been blocked. So the court has blocked the enforcement of laws, but these laws could then take effect if Roe is overturned. And these are in Alabama, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio, and South Carolina. Some states that I haven't mentioned that have old laws that predate Roe on their books. So laws that were before Roe, that, again, haven't been enforced since Roe, but could be enforced once Roe is overturned, or if, God, if Roe is overturned, are in Arizona, Michigan, and North Carolina, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Just to round out the list, Kansas has indicated its intent to restrict abortion to the maximum extent permitted if Roe is overturned. So there you have a very scary list. I know we mentioned Louisiana earlier, but the other scary potential is criminally charging people who have abortions or potentially use contraceptives that could in the future be banned. But abortion could be or would be considered a homicide and charged as such, which is terrifying absolutely terrifying and in some states i believe that if a person were to prevent or identify such a situation as happening there would be bounties and rewards for reporting or turning this in am i wrong they're called anti-abortion bounty laws they're named that because you can you can go after someone even across state lines and then you can sue them and get money for it. that's why they're called that that oh goodness even in case of cases of rape and incest too however on the positive side some states have been preparing for this in a better manner 
and have created specific protections in their state laws and constitutions. And proud Coloradan here. Colorado is especially urgent over this past year and is now an island in a sea of states that will potentially overturn abortion access and protections. But recently, Governor Democratic Governor Polis signed a bill into law. This was on April 4th of this year, which will protect abortions and contraceptives into state law. It defines embryos, fertilized eggs, and fetuses as lacking standing under state law. And it even forbids public entities from restricting access to contraceptives or abortion. And no surprise here, it was women who pushed for this. You know, representation absolutely matters. The significant part of these laws also is Colorado is definitely going to be seeing people from nearby states crossing over state lines to get abortion care. So pretty much on all sides, Wyoming, Nebraska, Kansas, Arizona, Utah, they're all going to be restricting or banning abortion altogether. And something interesting that I found is Mackenzie Scott, who is now one of the richest women in the world, She gave Planned Parenthood of Rocky Mountain $20 million to help with the uptake of abortions in Colorado from women coming from other states. Because once again, this is not a surprise. This is expected. So just something interesting. And I'm glad that someone is helping and something is being done, but scary to be in this situation. So we're going to see women crossing state lines even though states are going, some states are going to do their damnedest to keep that from happening. And then that's going to go to the Supreme Court because that certainly is a privacy issue right there. Washington State and New Jersey have also passed legislation this year to protect reproductive rights. California Governor Newsom suggested that his state will become an abortion sanctuary state The governors of New York and New Jersey, Vermont, Minnesota, Michigan, Oregon, and Washington State have also welcomed women from other states. And fun fact, after the Texas law, Planned Parenthood clinics from or in neighboring states saw an increase in patients of almost 800%, an 800% increase in patients in neighboring states of Texas. I just, I can't get my mind around that. But this raises some potentially serious legal issues. Texas's law already allows, actually encourages any citizen anywhere in the country to sue anyone who, quote, aids or abets, unquote, any abortion after about six weeks, right? This is the heartbeat law, a heartbeat that isn't really a heartbeat, by the way, because the heart isn't really formed yet. These are electrical impulses. We're still talking about an embryo, not a fetus. SCOTUS chose not to rule on this December of last year, which will undoubtedly empower other states, right? And these anti-abortion bounty hunter laws. So SCOTUS says, we're not going to hear this case. It's just kind of like tacit permission for other states to do this. And we started to see this where you can sue, not just someone in your state, you can sue someone in other states. You can sue someone from your state who's gone to another state. Idaho's state Senate approved a similar law to that in Texas, but it focuses a little more narrowly on suing doctors and nurses who perform abortions. And those who can sue are 
more limited to, well, I'm just going to use their language because it's a lot. Quote, any female upon whom an abortion has been attempted or performed, the father of the preborn child, a grandparent of the preborn child, a sibling of the preborn child, or an aunt or uncle of the preborn child. And if that weren't bad enough, while a rapist couldn't sue the abortion doctor of his victim, his relatives could. So the parents of a rapist can sue a woman, the victim, for having an abortion. What the hell kind of world are we living in? How is it already going to be easier and families of rapists will have more protection and rights than the victim or survivor? Yeah. Under some of these laws, doctors who perform abortions will go to jail uh, or women who have abortion will go to jail for longer than rapists would. And if that doesn't tell you that this is really about women and controlling women, I don't know what does. Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman of Missouri has proposed to widen the focus to a really absurd, as if this whole thing were not already absurd, or just going to widen to an absurd level. Anyone who provides information about how to get an abortion, including providing internet service or who transports a woman, like you talked about earlier about the Uber drivers, even down to simply encouraging her could be sued. All of this to mean that people in protected states could get sued in courts in anti-abortion states. Because if someone in Texas called me and I said, well, you know, if you came to Colorado we have some clinics here or whatever on the border, then I could get sued for encouraging or aiding and abetting. What about the right to privacy guaranteed in the constitution? It was a really fundamental right. Wouldn't these bounty laws violate that right? The constitution doesn't specifically say right to privacy. It doesn't use that language. But the Supreme Court has determined that it is implied in several amendments. So because the court has made these rulings, then it's become law. And these are really important parts of the Constitution. And yeah, this document was written by slaveholding men. It's patriarchal, contains a whole lot of fundamental contradictions, but it's the law of the land. So it's really critical to understand it. And I beg folks to read the Constitution. Please know and understand the rights that you have right now, at least according to this document. If we look at Roe v. Wade, argues that Texas anti-abortion laws are unconstitutional and that they were vague and constrained her privacy rights, Jane Roe's privacy rights, guaranteed to her by the first, fourth, fifth, ninth, and 14th amendments. The first amendment is about freedom of speech, press, assembly, and religion. And it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court to protect your right to keep your beliefs private. And that can be interpreted more broadly as well, depending on the makeup of the court, the privacy of your beliefs. The Fourth Amendment is about the privacy of yourself and your possessions. So protection from unreasonable search and seizure by the government and no warrants without probable cause. The 14th is really the big one that most refer to when talking about privacy, that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The due process clause, this is your freedom, your freedom to privacy, your freedom to dwell. It doesn't hurt anyone, doesn't break any laws, right? This is your freedom to privacy. 
the Ninth Amendment is also super important. And actually, if I had to choose my favorite in this document that I'm not necessarily a fan of, yeah, it's my favorite. And honestly, because it's a failsafe. Basically, it states that just because the Constitution lists a certain number of rights, it doesn't mean that the people don't have others. There's no way to list all of the rights we have. So we're just going to name some of the big ones. But just so you know, there are others. I think that's an important amendment. Ninth Amendment. Those were really the ones brought up by Roe v. Wade. And these also protect LGBTQ plus rights the right to contraception, and a whole lot of others that aren't stated explicitly in the Constitution either. And I really have to throw in the Third Amendment because that's what I think these anti-abortion bounty hunter laws are really going, well, are certainly going to violate because the Third Amendment's more current interpretation is privacy of the home. It might be my First Amendment right in my home to counsel someone about how or where to get an abortion. Those are Two amendments protecting my privacy. And these laws will violate those protections. Again, the U.S. Constitution isn't all that long. Please read it. You can find it online. These constitutional issues are just going to keep coming up. And honestly, I'm afraid become increasingly endangered. Just in the past few months, 46 states have introduced 1,844 provisions having to do with sexual and reproductive health and rights. How many will end up in the Supreme Court or just be immediately enacted if Roe v. Wade is is overturned? Frightening. Yeah, our Supreme Court has recently shifted. There's been some dramatic changes. Right now, there's six men and three women on the court. And with the appointment of Justice Kintaji Brown-Jackson, this will become five to four for women. And six of these justices lean conservative. Three were appointed by Trump, two by Bush, W. Bush, excuse me, and one by senior Bush. Three lean less conservative. Two were appointed by Obama, one by Clinton. Presidents nominate justices for life until they retire or die. And, you know, hot news lately in an unusual and questionable circumstance, the quickest nomination ever was Amy Coney Barrett. She was appointed in just 30 days. And before that, Brett Kavanaugh, who a survivor of his attacks, came forward and even testified at his hearings, didn't prevent his appointment either. These justices are being appointed faster and are, you know, generally almost guaranteed that they'll make it through the Senate vote. And with five out of the nine justices being appointed by presidents who didn't win the popular vote, W. Bush and Trump, a lot of people have questioned democracy and the process. Rightfully so. It's good to be critical. You've always taught me that, Dr. C. But what does this decision mean? in general to the Supreme Court, I think people are believing, you know, and this is demonstrated in recent polls too, people are believing more and more that it's more political and the Supreme Court is not supposed to be. Most Americans want abortion to be legal. Will that be considered by the judges as of now? It's not, or the justices. So the weekend approval rating, the leaked decision is affecting more than just the decision itself. Something else that's been really interesting that's been brought up by senators even is Coney Barrett, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, all nominees by Trump, when asked about Roe v. Wade, 
all acknowledged during their hearings that it's settled precedent with the understanding that if they don't, their approval would likely be jeopardized. Specifically, Senator Gillibrand and Senator Susan Collins, who's actually a Republican from Maine, have made public comments about the justices flat out lying. And all those justices have supported the decision as it stands with the recent leak. Right. You know, we won't get into this whole thing because that could be 10 episodes because there are books and a lot of articles written about this that you can look up. Maybe we can post some references to these, but the the very structure of the court, you know, there was some wisdom in that and the idea that you would have some stability, there would be some consistency in decision-making. And now with these ideological boundaries really shifting and stretching, I'm not sure that lifetime appointments are exactly what we need, unless it's RPG. RIP. Yeah, the impact of presidents once they leave. Yeah. Really powerful decisions. And I don't think we think about that that when we vote or don't vote for our elected leaders, that the impact of those choices outlive their terms in office. So Trump's appointees and and the others as well, too, but we're specifically talking about Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett, but those appointees are going to be on the court for a lifetime. This is political. We know that this is political because we can see how decisions are made by the ideology of the presidents who have appointed them and the Congresses who voted them in. But we can also see it in the fact that Justice Breyer was encouraged to retire so that he wouldn't be retiring during the term of a Republican president, and therefore he wouldn't be replaced by a Republican like RBG was. So now folks are having to be political about timing, timing of appointees. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a political scientist, so yeah, it goes without saying, and you're a political scientist, so you understand this too. It's just it's so important to pay attention to. It's so important to pay attention to because all of these decisions have long-term effects, really long-term effects. And we need to think about it in different ways too, because our discussion so far has really been pretty legalistic, but societally, this fallout will hit in so many different ways. And we have to look at it in so many different ways. So we have to talk about intersectionality. When we talk about feminism, we can really talk about this more recent feminism as intersectional feminism. And I really am encouraged by that. But basically, intersectionality is this idea that the ways in which the systems of inequality based on gender or race or ethnicity or sexual orientation, gender identity, disability, class, and other forms of discrimination intersect with each other to create these unique dynamics and effects. We're not all the same. We don't all experience things the same way. We don't all have the same 24 hours, Kim Kardashian. We don't all have surrogates and full-time nannies and disposable income in the millions. So yeah, intersectionality. (laughs) Um, The foundations of 
Intersectional feminism were made by feminists of color who felt that organizations, especially the National Organization of Women, did not address or even acknowledge how racial inequities or how their experiences might be important, different, or valid. Intersectionality is such an important conversation, especially in this topic. Absolutely. I mean, an important way to think about our own lives in general. I mean, think about your own intersectionality. This is what I do in my classes. I have everyone draw their own intersectionality. They don't have to share it, but I share mine as an example. If I have all these lines intersecting to make me, right, I'm the center. That's how I think of it. And these lines come with different levels of oppression, right, and history and uh, privilege. So woman, that's my primary identity. That comes with a level of oppression. Latina, that comes with a level of oppression, but at the same time, I'm a white Latina, and that comes with a level of privilege. I live in the United States, that comes with a level of privilege. I was raised really poor, but now I'm middle class, middle class with a really hefty tuition bill. So I'm putting myself at lower middle class because I'm living on granola bars. Still, I have a lot of privilege that I have to recognize, and I'm straight. That's the other thing. I'm straight, I'm cisgender. That grants me a degree of privilege over what other people's identities are. Certainly. I think, too, you can break it down quite a bit, even to region. Something that especially affects and impacts this topic is rural versus urban. Yeah. And just resources as well. Yeah, like myself being in a management level position my employer offers the same benefits to all employees, regardless of where they are in the company. But not all employers are like that, especially with some benefits we'll get into here soon. But intersectionality really defines someone's experience. So we really have to look at every issue from an intersectional perspective. Also note that this intersectionality includes gender, gender identity, So men also can look at this from their own gender perspective. They are included in this intersectional perspective. But in terms of this particular issue, we have to look at race, socioeconomic status, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, nationality, religion. All of these are going to be factors affecting her decision or her ability to access an abortion. And this is especially important in states that are now restricting or punishing abortion. So let me give you an example. The Hyde Amendment, 1976, prohibits Medicaid from funding abortion, except in cases of rape or incest or if a woman's life is endangered. This disproportionately affects women of color because social and economic inequities mean that they are more likely to be insured by Medicaid. Native American women are guaranteed free health care but that doesn't include abortions, which is ironic as hell because the U.S. government committed a type of genocide through involuntary sterilization of Native women, and now it's still controlling their reproductive rights. Medicaid won't pay for abortions today, but in the 1960s and 70s, it funded involuntary sterilization affecting more than 100,000 Black Latina in addition to Native women. It's not just about controlling women's bodies, but about controlling certain kinds of bodies for different reasons. Because today in Texas, Black women are three times more likely to die during pregnancy or labor than white women. 
three times more likely to die during pregnancy or labor, not during abortion. We're not even talking about that. In terms of abortion access, another obstacle might be for immigrant women who will be reluctant to travel due to fear of immigration checkpoints. What about poor women who can't afford to travel to other states to get abortion, much less to other countries? Clearly, anti-abortion folks don't care about women. And we often talk about how anti-choice folks, you know, if they really cared about the babies, they would demand affordable health care, child care, guaranteed paid parental leave that wouldn't affect a woman's promotions, and, and then to systemic racism, among a whole lot of other things. I have never heard a satisfying answer from them about this. And then I read a great piece by Kianga Yamada Taylor in The New Yorker about how the lawyers representing Mississippi in the Supreme Court case argue that forced pregnancy and motherhood doesn't cause undue hardship, right? That undue burden for women anymore. And I have to read some of these quotes from the lawyers because they just were beyond belief. Quote, many laws protect equal opportunity, including prohibitions on sex and pregnancy discrimination in employment. Okay, on the book, sure. Apparently there's also, quote, support to offset the cost of childcare for working mothers, unquote, and, quote, sweeping policy advances now promote women's full pursuit of both career and family, end quote. Again, thanks to Kianga Yamada-Taylor for these quotes, like this other one from the Mississippi Attorney General. Quote, 50 years ago for professional women, they wanted you to make a choice. Now you don't have to. Now you have the opportunity to be whatever you want to be. You have the option in life to really achieve your dreams, your goals, and you can have those beautiful children as well. What kind of utopia are these people living in? I mean, I guess it wouldn't be a utopia. It would be an actual rational world. But in the real world we're actually living in, we know that the maternal mortality rate increased almost 37% between 2018 and 2020. That's the most recent data available. And it's almost three times higher for black women than white women. It's interesting, and you turned me on to this, Mariah, that a study of over a million women in the UK and Canada found that women are 39% more likely to die if a man performs their surgery than a woman. And they're 15% more likely to have a bad outcome if a man performs a surgery than a woman. And I can provide my own anecdotal evidence, botched surgery, God awful. And yes, women's health, if you're listening to this, you know who you are. In the real world, we know that almost half of abortion patients live below the poverty level. The most recent data I could find was from 2014. I can't imagine that that has changed all that dramatically. In the real world, we know that the average cost of childcare for an infant is $1,300 a month, and that's almost $16,000 a year. And due to lack of funding, only one in seven eligible children actually receives a subsidy for childcare. And this is a subsidy that the lawyers that I was just telling you about believe means that women can just achieve their dreams and that there are no longer any obstacles and that they can have these beautiful children with no problem. 
a family of three with an annual income above $32,580 would not even be eligible for any subsidies in a number of states. A family of three living at $32,580 would not be eligible for any childcare subsidies when it costs $1,300 a month for an infant, for one infant a month. That's outrageous. I was super lucky when I got here because I could not afford the daycare that exists here where we live. I was very lucky to find an in-home licensed woman who was willing to work with me because I don't know how else folks do it. In this actual world that we live in now, only 23% of civilian workers in the U.S. have access to paid parental leave. Half of those folks are men, by the way, the way the data is measured. So consider how many women have paid leave. The highest percentage of those workers are in management and professional jobs. So not low income, disproportionately white folks are what we're talking about. In this world, white women earn 80 cents to a white man's dollar, while black women earn 64 cents, indigenous women earn 60 cents, and Latinas earn 57 cents. So in este mundo, the gender wage gap becomes wider when we measure it over time. Why? Because society pushes women to spend time out of the workforce, in part because they take care of children. So over 15 years, women are actually paid an average of just 49 cents for each dollar paid to a man. This means that by the time they retire, women typically get 20% less in social security than men, and they will also have less in private retirement savings. And this brings us back full circle to why affordable childcare and paid parental leave are so important. But what about adoption? First of all, take away a woman's choice so she can provide to the quote, domestic supply of infants, end quote, make women part of a commodity chain. And just what immediately came to mind was then what next? Have women be forced to pump for the next year for the domestic supply of milk for adopted babies? How far are we going to take that? To be fair, to be fair, Alito and Barrett didn't actually say this, right? To become part of the domestic supply of infants, that whole quote. That was actually the CDC back in like 2002 or something. But Alito did reference it in a footnote. It is true that most babies put up for adoption are adopted as babies, but the justices make the process sound easy, clean, emotionless. A woman produces a baby, woman gives up baby, easy peasy. But pregnancy is a time fraught with emotion. I can only imagine if it were forced. The family pressure to keep a child there are so many intersectional and deeply personal issues involved. So a decision to overturn Roe will have a major impact on foster care services. That's just another issue. There are more than 250,000 children placed into foster care each year already. Adoptions of newborns from foster care fail 10 to 25% of the time. So 10 to almost a quarter of the time. And if we want to talk about adoption, let's talk about adoption of older children. In 2020, 117,000 children were waiting to be adopted from the foster care system. But each year, 23,000 foster care kids age out. They turn 18 with a lifetime of traumatic experiences. And then what? 20% become immediately homeless. Seven to 10 young women who age out of the foster system become pregnant before 21. Does that mean they're going to become part of this domestic supply of infants? 
one in four kids who age out of the foster system will not graduate high school, even though 70% say they'd like to go to college. All of this reminds us that these attacks on abortion, these attacks aren't really about babies or children, are they? So where do we go from here? Stay tuned for part three, the last part of Roe v. Wade está en peligro. And in the meantime, go rock the world with your beautiful self. <laughs>